Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's January the 3rd, 2023, only three days into the year, and it seems as though we're going through some pretty profound changes on the tech front. Interesting piece in the Atlantic, um, this issue, the end of the Silicon Valley myth by Brian Merchant. Uh, he says the tech giants have sh who have shaped our lives, the Amazons, the Alphabets, the Microsofts, the Metas and Apples, etc. cetera, uh, they have last hit a wall. And when you look at the, the headlines today, it seems as if it that's the case, Google and uh, Google and Meta, Meta, of course, used to be called Facebook, um, are losing their advertising online dominance. Tesla continues to fall. Uh, less said about Elon Musk, the better. Even Apple's market share has fallen below $2 trillion, which still makes it a fairly significantly valuable company. Uh, particularly interesting, Microsoft workers are now forming the company's first union in the United States. Microsoft seems, of all these big tech companies, to be um, the most enlightened. And one of my favorite tech guys, uh, Brad Feld, who's been on the show before a couple of times uh, on his blog on Feld Thought, said it feels now like 2000, uh, the tech crash back then. So I thought we'd get Brad on to talk a little bit more about why uh, January 2023 is beginning to feel like 2000. Brad, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. You're a, a VC and all that. Uh, you've done well out of tech, but my sense is you're not too unhappy with what's happening at the moment. Is that fair? Yeah, unhappy is such a loaded word. Um, uh, there's a great Charlie Munger thing that went around over the weekend about, you know, how much better off uh, many of us are than, you know, a hundred years ago. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, shit's happening. You got to deal with it. But from the standpoint of, you know, zoning in on what's happening in the tech industry today, uh, I, I'm not unhappy. The last, the last couple of years, and, and really, if you, you have to go back 12 months, but prior to 12 months ago, so uh, 2021 and earlier, you know, we had reached a peak moment of suspension of disbelief. And um, that moment probably peaked around mid-November 2021. And, you know, since then, it's been a steady slide down. Interestingly, uh, I don't think a lot of people started really dealing with the reality of what was happening until the middle of the year uh, last year. And, you know, even today, a lot of people are still you know, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things um, that it's worth noting is when you came on the show in August, you called it as it was. You made it clear that you thought crypto was just a plain fraud. You didn't put any caveats. You just said it was a bit of a scam. Of course, the other headline today is Sam Bankman-Fried <laughs> pleading not guilty to fraud. He'll probably end up in jail. Um, why are so few tech insiders, Brad, not willing to call it as it is, even though they generally know the truth? I think a couple of things. One is, in a lot of cases, there's no incentive uh, to, to say it. There's, um, 
an age-old quote. Um, I don't know where it first started, but uh, it gets repeated every now and then, which is, you, you know, to, you, you play the game that's on the field. And, you know, when everybody is hyping everything, uh, it, it's very easy to get pulled into whatever that is. The other side of it is I think a lot of people, uh, I use the word suspend disbelief. Um, you know, the, the dynamics of the tech industry over, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s over my whole life has been a pretty steady ride of boom and bust of um, uh, innovation and new things uh, being way, way, way ahead of uh, where the market is, where the customer is when they first come about, or sort of the vision that people have that they're selling not be backed up by the technology. And, you know, there's this very aggressive hype cycle that Gartner talks about that turns out to be very valid in lots of different segments where everybody gets tangled up in the, wow, this is the great next new thing. Um, and ultimately in terms of value creation, you got to build a fucking business and everybody sort of knows that at some level. Um, but there's the hope that, you know, maybe I can get out of the investment before, you know, the moment of truth comes or this time it's going to be different, all kinds of cliches like that. Um, and, you know, it just, it kind of plays out over and over again uh, the same way. Uh, and innovation advances forward, but it's not this sort of endlessly upward sloping, super positive curve. It's one that has a lot of uh, correction, a lot of stress, a lot of failure. And even when uh, companies are doing great and the headlines are all about tech, there's a huge amount of misery in failure and entrepreneurship and many, many companies that are not working and lots of entrepreneurs that are trying really, really hard and are just not, you know, having it come together. And so sort of having a broader perspective about what's happening, uh, I think is very useful, but it's, there's just not a lot of incentive to be out in front, you know, front and center talking about things that way. Back in 2000, if that's where we've returned to, of course, it was, I mean, depending how you look at it, it was either the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning, or the beginning of the beginning. So it was <laughs> the beginning of Web 2.0. What are you hopeful about? I mean, leaving aside the investment side, are there technologies around today, Brad, in, in, in January 2023 that are equivalent to the, the Web 2.0 blogging technologies, search engine, other platforms that existed even uh, at the lowest point of the market in, tw in 2000? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I'd I adjust the time frame a tiny bit. I, I don't think we're, uh, I think we just went through uh, 2000 and I think 2022 was analog analogous to 2000. I think 2023 will be more analogous to 2001. Mm. Um, and Web 2.0 really didn't emerge uh, until I think 2004, 2005. I can't remember when Tim O'Reilly coined the well, phrase. The, the term, but O'Reilly was just kind of acknowledging a reality. He didn't create Web 2.0. Yeah, but I, I don't think that's that really started with fervor uh, until probably 2003 or four. Because okay. what, what I but what I remember was you know there was this really you know sort of nine-month period uh, in 2000, after the NASDAQ peaked uh, in, in March, where everybody was sort of hopeful. They were hopeful that this would be temporal, 
right? Things would sort of bounce back and yeah, you know, values came down and things got harder. And I, I remember uh, a really important relic of that history, which was an article in Barron's, which I almost never read. And it was, it, it was, a, a, the, the list was a hundred companies that Barron's thought would go bankrupt uh, in the next 12 months, public companies. Um, and I, I only remember the article because two of the companies I was on the board of was on the list. And I, I remember, you know, my first reaction was, nah, that's impossible. It's bullshit. They're wrong. Mm. Uh, and in fact, one of them went bankrupt. The other one got, you know, I think ultimately acquired for like three cents a share or something like that. I mean, it, 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 as close to going bankrupt as you could. Um, and, and so it was very prescient, that article. And as time unfolded, by about 2003, 2004, there was starting to be uh, a sort of positive sentiment again. But 2001 and 2002 were very hard years from which came some good companies. And I, I think that's the moment we're entering now, which is a, another very hard year. But this time, the number of companies that are well-funded are significantly greater. The number of companies that actually have decent business models, uh, you know, on an absolute basis are much greater. And the number of users and customers of the technology are several orders of magnitude greater. So I, I think the dynamics here um, will be very, you know, will be different on some dimensions. And I'm very optimistic that there's gonna be a big shift away from effectively uh, companies that are doing things that really have very little ultimate value to the end user and are really sort of layer upon layer upon layer of, of speculative utility will start to shift more dramatically. A lot of those things will, will vanish. Now, I, I think crypto, by the way, was a big, you know, a big chunk of that, uh, that distraction. Um, but there's a lot of stuff uh, if you look across all of the companies that got funded in the last five or six years, many of them that, you know, they're just, they don't deserve to exist. They don't really have a business um, or the business that they have is, is one that probably will never have economic characteristics that are sustainable. And some of those, by the way, are very large companies uh, in terms of, you know, the, the revenue scale. Uh, they'll probably get wiped out in the next couple of years as well. And generally speaking, you know, to your, am I optimistic? I think that's a very natural part of the phenomena. You know, I live in Colorado. We have fires here all the time in, in the Rocky Mountain West in the U.S. And the pessimistic part of, of fires is, oh, it's such a tragedy. Um, uh, my wife grew up in, in Alaska. And the optimistic part of fires is a very healthy part of the ecosystem, um, that's needed to clean out a lot of, uh, you know, dead parts of the ecosystem, a lot of the underbrush that doesn't allow sort of the next generation to grow. You can turn it into a cliche pretty quickly. Um, and from my frame of reference, I think the next couple of years are going to have a lot of that activity where there's going to be a lot of stuff that gets re-evaluated in terms of priorities. And by the way, it doesn't have to have uh, utility is, is uh, I would say it doesn't have to have uh, clearly defined utility. Entertainment is utility, right? So, you know, there, there are many things where somebody can say, well, you know, all these things are entertainment. Yeah, comma, but, 
and you know, an example of the uh, comma but is how many streaming services do we really need? And what is the fundamental way that people are accessing video? And what is the underlying monetization structure of that? The number of companies that got created to try to do things on the margins of that, you know, that got funded and raised plenty of money and are now going to disappear uh, are quite significant. Did that all allow the things that are really, again, useful or have some utility to grow? Thinking in a historical context, Brad, the, the other thing that's happened at the end of 2022 was the open AI stuff, these chatbots that seem to convince a lot of people. We've had a number of AI shows. Gary Marcus is ambivalent, but um, Toby Walsh, who's another leading AI expert, acknowledges that this is for real. Do, do you see what um, OpenAI is doing with with uh, with AI and, and chat? Is that a structural shift? Is that for real? Uh, it could be. Uh, I I don't I don't have a uh, a religious fervor around it. And I'll describe uh, something that uh, happened right away uh, when um, you know when the when the uh, chat API became open and people started using it uh, and, and sending stuff around. Um, and it's something, you know, I think everybody here that talks about the future probably is familiar with the, the phrase, the singularity and the concept that uh, Ray Kurzweil came up with. Um, this really, for me, became very quickly the circularity. And here's how it works. I type a couple of things into uh, the chatbot. It spits out a whole bunch of text. I then take the text and stick it into a summarizer bot that then turns it into my bullet points. And uh, within a couple of days of, of the chatbot hype, um, I, I literally got an email from somebody pitching <laughs> a summarizer. That's what caused me to have the idea. I'm like, whoa, like, yeah. you know, we're, we're in this circularity, right? Where we can type a couple of things, it generates a whole bunch of text uh, but then we need something to then summarize the text back into something we can consume. Now, all that said, it, it is really fun and fascinating and interesting uh, to play around with this stuff and see what it's good at and gets right and see what it sucks at. And whether you're doing it with, um, you know, the, 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 the graphics and the visual engines, uh, you know, you're typing a special phrase into Dolly or Stable Diffusion, or you're typing something into the chat box and getting a bunch of words out. You know, it's pretty cool. However, um, it's really easy to see two problems right away. And I'm sure there are many, many very smart people working on these two problems. One of them is uh, just the amount of stuff that the answers are either uh, unsatisfying uh, or weak. Or just wrong. Or just plain, plain wrong and complicated wrong, right? Like a lot of text and you got to like, whoa, that's not right. I don't think that's right. And then you go do a couple of searches on Google and you're like, nope, that, that was wrong. The, the other thing that you see right away, and it's, it's more visual when you do it with one of the, uh, you know, the visual uh, AIs, um, you know, where you ask it, you know, uh, one of my favorite ones. I, I I play around with bears and smoked salmon and all kinds of different prompts uh, and sushi because of the whole Alaska thing. And you get some crazy, crazy stuff. And you're like, yep, has no idea what to do with that. 
Um, the other is you run into something and you're like, um, yeah, that's copyright material or that's somebody else's image or mm. there's no possible way that, you know, that to generate that output, it didn't ingest something that somebody else wrote. Um, and so, you know, understanding where those boundaries are and what to do with those boundaries and how to manage those boundaries. Uh, a good friend of mine, a guy named Phil Weiser, who's now the attorney general of uh, Colorado, has long said that the law, uh, take, the, the law lags technology and it takes a long time for the law to catch up. But that doesn't mean that technology can ignore the laws. And so this is going to be one of those situations where as um, uh, the different AI engines get more sophisticated and we give them more corpus to play with, it might be either proprietary or copyright or whatever, um, you know, as part of the training sets, some of these issues are going to become more profound. All that said, it's, it's super, super interesting, really fascinating. And not surprising, the the letters A and I are now being slapped on all kinds of yeah everything funding pitches that have nothing to do with artificial intelligence. So you know that's very predictable, and yeah, you know just part of the cycle. Maybe I should call this show AI, though, as you say, it's not in any way AI. Um, and of course, in a cultural and political sense, the implications of AI for pessimists is they'll replace human beings and. Then we get into the whole labor issue. I wonder if you had any thoughts on this Microsoft workers' decision to form the company's first union. Do you think that we are in a period going forward where large companies will not be able to exist without allowing their employees to form unions? Uh, I'm going to put myself firmly in the I don't know category. Uh, the efforts to create unionization of different employee groups in different tech companies has been something that, you know, in the last three or four years, you know, there's been uh, a lot of real effort, whether it's with Apple in the stores or with Amazon and the distribution centers. Um, and it's just one of those things where uh, I, was, I was in a conversation with somebody about uh, labor dynamics uh, who then recommended a book to me that was sort of a history of unions and, and temporary workers and the dynamics between unions and temporary workers. And, you know, what I, what I realized very quickly as I got a little bit smarter about it was just a profound challenge uh, for both sides of the equation. And uh, the challenge that comes from not sort of a new dynamic with labor and organized labor versus uh, at-will employees and companies, but how the laws, whether it's state laws, country-level laws, um, uh, you know, history of dynamics with individual companies, sort of constraints around what people can and can't do, there's, it's just, it's a very, very complicated and frankly, very politicized mess that it's hard to predict where it goes. For me personally, as somebody who's um, invested in and worked with very young companies at, and had a number of those young companies grow up to be much larger companies, um, I think uh, the unionization efforts um, aimed at smaller companies tend to be very, very 
confusing and disorienting to me. It doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, uh, there's a certain point and a certain category of workers um, uh, in different types of companies where it makes more sense to me as those companies get larger. Um, but if you tie the history you know, back and you, and you think about physical labor versus you know, what for many years has been categorized as knowledge workers, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard thing to separate. So again, I, I started with, I don't really know, I don't perceive myself to be an expert at it. And I find many of the arguments, both sides to be very complicated and not really clear to me. What about on the Amazon front? Do you think that Amazon's profitability, um, I mean, they could remain a profitable company, but they, they never would have been a miraculously profitable company without, without uh, the ability to sort of, to, to, to not allow their or not have their workers form unions. Do you think that in a way this is, the, this reflects Merchant's point about the end of uh, the Silicon Valley myth that these companies are exceptional; that they outside that they they exist outside traditional laws of economic gravity. Yeah, the the Amazon example is a fascinating one because I think uh, labor is a piece of that, but also uh, for many many years, Amazon's tax avoidance schemes, um, especially sales tax avoidance in you know in local geographies, were an enormous competitive advantage for it. Um, uh, relative to, you know, local businesses and, and businesses it was competing with. I remember a point in time in Colorado for many years where Amazon employees were not even allowed to travel to Colorado because they didn't want to create any evidence of nexus and as a result have to be subject to any sort of sales tax uh, dynamics. Now, you know, over time they changed that, but it, it created massive, massive uh, economic advantage for them and growth over time. And there have been, you know, a number of different categories of their business where that's true. One of the slides you showed earlier was the one where uh, it mentioned, you know, uh, Meta, uh, you know, Meta's advertising uh, sort of falling apart. Um, and uh, there you go. Amazon further solidifies the spot as third largest digital ad platform. I remember when Amazon started its digital ad platform, that couldn't have been more than six or seven, eight years ago. Um, and, you know, the way it's used its ad platform in its online market, again, as a uh, disproportionate competitive advantage has been stunning. Um, now, you can argue that those are truly nefarious behaviors by the company. You can also argue that they're hyper-rational economic behaviors by the company. Independent of that, there's no question that those kinds of things have helped Amazon achieve enormous scale. Um, what is interesting to ponder in this moment uh, is the amount of bad will Amazon has created amongst large populations of the labor force um, and the overinvestment Amazon has made uh, in different areas of their infrastructure, whether it be pure supply chain, uh, or facilities, and one way to see it, and you know, it'd be interesting to see when that this this uh, normalizes. But Amazon, well, even though its P and L was not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, a huge net income generator, it was a massive free cash flow machine, 
And that reversed a year ago, five or six quarters ago. Um, and in a really dramatic way, um, it's not dissimilar to some of the things that you're seeing in other businesses. Well, you look at B2B SaaS companies and scale B2B SaaS companies, there was uh, a recent thing that went around about Salesforce where their, um, their payback period, uh, their gross margin payback on a new customer went from like uh, two years to a decade. I, I feel like somebody said a hundred years, but I think it's a decade. It doesn't feel like a hundred years would be possible. That, that math won't work. So let's say it went from two years to a decade. Well, if you're payback on acquiring a new customer on a gross margin basis a decade, well, that doesn't work. Um, you know, that's not worth 10 times forward revenue. Um, and so the, the underlying fundamental economics of these businesses uh, do come into play. And, you know, one of the reasons, and come back to Microsoft, Microsoft has been um, such a, a, a strong company for so many years is because for much of their product line, not all of it, but for much of their product line, they have a very nominal cost of goods sold. Um, they mess that up in different parts of time with different bit parts of businesses and different investment cycles. Um, but on, you know, in the last, again, four or five years, six years under the current leadership, they've done an excellent job with that. And you look at other companies, right? I mean, if Google just stopped doing all the other shit they did and you get rid of all that other shit that they did for the last, um, uh, 15 years, that was just massive, massive cash burn experimentation um, and concentrated all of their economics on what was essentially the ad business. And, you know, instead of investing that in a whole bunch of other stuff that really hasn't had huge payback, you bought back shares and you distributed cash to shareholders. It'd be pretty incredible. And again, just as a, an argument there, Apple on the other end, uh, again, saw an article recently, Apple in the last uh, I think decade has has um, uh, distributed something like half a half a trillion dollars to shareholders. Um, you know, has a two billion dollar market cap, a two trillion dollar market cap, and has distributed twenty five percent of their market cap in the last decade to shareholders. That's incredible. So you know, like the core economic engines here are very strong, but they're not different. And the rational economics that exist, you just have to understand how the pieces. Yeah, work. it's all timing. When you think of uh, Amazon and what you're saying, it underlines the fact that Jeff Bezos is a genius on lots of fronts. Perhaps most of all on on timing in his decision to retire, at least in part. Do you have any take on the? Wouldn't it be fascinating if he really had? If he really timed that. In a press well, he event. knew. I mean, he's seeing it from the inside. He must understand as well as anyone these issues. Yeah, but the level the level of prescience that you have to have to, to call it six well, months. Well, maybe, like, maybe wow. not. Uh, I mean, it wow. seems like the opposite of uh, Bezos is Musk. Do you have any thoughts on Musk, Brad? Do you know him? Uh, no, I don't. I don't know. Is he insane? Does he know what he's doing? Do we should yeah. we even be should we care about him? I I, I don't. Like, I think, I think so many, I think there's so much conversation about it. I'll let other people be entertained with whatever they think, but it's not. Good. Well, you passed on Bezos. You, when you came on the show in July, 2020, you talked about how venture capitalists can reshape communities for the better. At the beginning of this conversation, you talked about there not being an incentive for VCs to tell the truth. Um, but you know better than anyone that VCs aren't just 
obsessed with making money. They have consciences. They want to make the world a better place. You're not alone. I've got other VC friends like uh, Albert Wenger at Union Square Ventures who want to make money, but also want to make the world a better place. Is there any possibility that this latest upheaval might result in a, in a, in a more moral, more responsible VC community? You know, I hope so. I, I think that uh, when I when I look at the my own long arc, I've been investing as a VC since the mid 1990s. Um, you know, you you for periods of time, you have VC communities, whether they're across the whole industry as an aggregate or in different geographies or in different sectors, where the the majority or significant number of investors are very focused on innovation and are very focused on helping entrepreneurs be successful um, and approach it, you know, from their own frames of references and different personalities and different value systems. But, um, but from fundamentally the, you know, similar perspective, which is they're trying to be a participant in uh, something that uh, I'm going to use the word, overuse the word innovation, accelerates innovation forward. When, uh, and I've seen this now multiple times, uh, when uh, greed kicks in um, and more and more people are attracted to being investors because of the amount of money being made by investors and true for entrepreneurs too. When entrepreneurs, an entrepreneurship becomes uh, viewed as uh, a source of huge wealth creation as the primary driver, you get uh, misallocation of supply, all of a sudden a whole bunch of people um, get involved and start doing a bunch of stuff and are doing it, uh, you know, his, when I was first doing it, there was a, a VC that talked about, you really want people who are not mercenary, they're missionary, they're on a mission. Um, and I've seen this in companies. I mean, I was, I was uh, uh, an investor in a company called Zynga, which was one of the- Yeah, first, my, Pink, uh, Pincus, right? Mark Pincus, right. And it was- you know, it was a, a company created in a moment of time that was, uh, you know, it, it created a new form of entertainment. It grew incredibly fast. We invested when it was about 10 people. Uh, Mark had enormous energy for the vision he was trying to create and the thing he was trying to do. And I would say for probably the first thousand employees of that company, it was very much mission driven. People, you know, it was entertainment. People were not making a new form of you know, energy or, uh, you know, lowering the carbon output of the planet or something like that. But, you know, entertainment is, uh, is part of our species uh, uh, consumption pattern. And this was a way to have people be entertained in, in a social context versus, versus not. By the time the company got to about a thousand employees, it was clearly very successful. People started joining, not because they cared at all about the products the company was making, but because they just wanted to make bucks. They just wanted to make more money. They saw this as a thing that was going to be a source of, of wealth for them. Um, I think this is one of those moments where there's a massive, massive reset on that dynamic for entrepreneurs. There are many entrepreneurs, <clears throat> even when they have an abundance of wealth, still are very, very focused on creating the next wave of stuff, the next wave of innovation. And there are many others who, once they have an enormous amount of wealth, are very interested in exerting their power in other ways and, 
you know, and influencing society in ways that, you know, fit their worldview. And <clears throat> interestingly, in the venture community, broadly read, it tends to be less visible than the entrepreneurs. But interestingly, the VCs have a lot of impact on how the money gets allocated. And so by definition, it has a downstream impact on where people spend their time and what they put their energy into. I, uh, in, in November, I was at the Techonomy Conference in Sonoma, lots and lots of talk about the environment and technology. Are you optimistic about that, Brad? Is that one area where we can be good and successful at the same time? Or is that again, a, a Silicon Valley delusion? Well, you mentioned, you mentioned Albert Winger a few minutes ago. Albert's, yeah, he's just started a new fund of that. Yeah, I mean, Albert's a longtime friend. I have enormous respect for him. And, and you know, his partners at USV and him started a climate fund. And now they're now on their second climate fund. So they were early to this cycle of focusing on investing in climate-related technology. Um, you know, we're involved in or I'm involved in have friends that, you know, have done lots of things in this area. Uh, my wife, uh, Amy Batchelor, is the vice chair of the Nature Conservancy, which is a very large nonprofit um, that in the last seven or eight years has done a ton around innovation, both, you know, in a commercial sense, but also internally in terms of the kinds of solutions uh, and, and frankly, problems they're identifying and attacking with different solutions. And you know, I've seen a number of other successful uh, investors who have decided to shift their energy to this area. Brian Halligan um, uh, and a couple of friends, including another friend of mine, Reese Pacchio. Um, Brian was the founder of HubSpot, have started a venture fund um, called Propeller that's focused on uh, ocean technology and working in conjunction with Woods Hole Institute. So you've got a lot of people who are very smart, experienced, who are trying to apply um, entrepreneurial activity to addressing fundamental climate-related issues um, in, in a sort of broad way. Uh, and so I, I think that is an area to be optimistic. Um, not surprisingly, there's suddenly... Uh, a huge abundance of funds being raised for climate. And now there's, you know, sections of newsletters being talked about climate investing. And there's whole categories of investors that frankly don't really know very much about this stuff, all of a sudden jumping in and making investments. That's normal. That's normal. That, again, that's, that's what's unfolded year over year over year or cycle over cycle. I do think it feels very different than what happened in um, the, uh, the mid 2000s with the thing that was clean tech, uh, which was really mostly a bust. And, and that mostly a bust with the benefit of hindsight from my perspective is that you had a whole bunch of software IT VCs and investors who piled into very expensive, really structured finance type transactions to try to generate quote, clean tech innovation. Um, and really, didn't focus on the same kinds of innovation, innovation economics that they'd had a lot of success with prior. This feels different. This feels much more informed. It feels much more focused on the underlying technologies, whether they be software or be hardware um, or be something that's uh, bio-related. Uh, and then, you know, the integration between the pieces um, and the vision you know, uh, and the theses that people like Albert have 
uh, seem more solid. Um, all that said, it's not an area I'm an expert in. It's an area I'm an, an observer and a happy investor in other experts uh, like mm. Albert. Yeah, and, I'm going to uh, DLD next week and I'll see Albert. So hopefully we'll do an interview. Then no, let's, let's end, Brad, um, on 2023. One thing you know is how realistically things change. You, you're not going to fall for the delusionary idea that the world can be transformed in a year or a few months. What would you like to see on the tech front this time next year when you and I have our annual summary again? What can be done? Where can we be in a better spot in January 2023 than we are today? Uh, sorry, uh, January 2024 than we are in January 2023. Yeah. I, I think I would like to see a lot more, uh, I was going to say honest, but that's not quite the humility is the word I'm searching for a lot more humility from tech leaders um, about the impact of what they're doing and what their companies are doing, that impact that those companies have on society, people, individuals, and, and the humility around the interconnectedness of it. And recognizing that, you know, we're, we're living in a very complex system. I mean, our species uh, and, and sort of the whole notion of complexity theory applies to what we create. Like there's so much stuff that has, uh, it, you know, you do something, it has an impact on something that becomes an input to something else that has an impact on something. And there's an endless number of those happening all the time. And there is no canonical answer. Like you can't do X. X is the solution is bullshit. And I wish there was just, I, I, I think a year from now, instead of people, if you wound the clock back a year, I think, again, we were at this extreme notion of suspension of disbelief. I know better. We are smart. This is how it works. We are changing the world. We are making the world a better place all of that sort of self-centric, self-centered language versus, hey, I'm a participant in this very complex thing. I care a lot about this stuff. That's what I'm working on and putting my energy towards. This stuff could be supporting other entrepreneurs who are trying to create companies, or this stuff could be a very specific company product technology that you're going after. There's no good or bad on that, but it's, it's a sort of sense of this stuff's hard. And a lot of it doesn't work. And the implications of what I choose to do has far reaching effects, whether it's a tweet <laughs> that I say or something that I write or something that I do or something that my company does. Humility around that, I think, would be something that would be healthy coming out of 23 into 24. Because Again, I'm not. I'm not going to predict what 23 is because I have no clue. Um, but my, I'm, I'm, a, I'm operating from the perspective that it's going to be a challenging year for many aspects of our society, especially for tech. That there's a huge amount of stuff that still needs to unwind um, and get back to a normative place. And as a result, it's just the people that sort of focus on it, deal with reality, and that just. Do the stuff that has to be done, work hard at it and do it as well as they know how uh, with others. That's what I'm that's what I wish more would happen. X.